Welcome to the AT Parenting Survival Podcast, where you get help and guidance through the chaos of parenting a child with anxiety or OCD. This show is for educational purposes and is not intended to replace the guidance of a qualified professional. Here's your host, child therapist, Natasha Daniels. Well, hello there, and welcome to another episode of the AT Parenting Survival Podcast. Today, I want to talk about something that I think we probably all struggle with on some level, and that is when do we push? When do we push hard? And when do we not push? When do we pull back when we're trying to help our kids with anxiety or OCD? That balancing act is a challenge, right? And I don't think we talk about that enough as far as what are the standards? How do I know when I'm supposed to push? And I find parents who are swinging a little bit too far to the left and parents who swing a little too far to the right and parents who are pretty good at trying to balance and get in that middle sweet spot. You'll never be perfect because nobody is. But I want to talk today about when should you push your child? When should you not? And some tips and guidance. There is no perfect answer like because there never is, right? But I just want to give you a little bit of support in your struggle around that. And maybe you don't struggle, but maybe after this episode, you'll think, hmm, maybe I need to think about that. Maybe I'm pushing too much, or maybe I'm not pushing enough. So we'll explore that as well. Before we get started, I always like to thank NoCD for sponsoring this episode. They offer affordable, effective, convenient therapy, and it's available in the U.S. and outside of the U.S., which is really good because there is a barrier to services, not only in the States, but around the world. And you can schedule a free 15-minute consultation just to even see if NoCD is a right fit for you and your child. So just go to treatmyocd.com and I will leave the link in the show notes. Definitely worth checking out. I'm noticing that there's a lot of providers now popping up in Phoenix, which is amazing because we have had a deficit of OCD-trained therapists for a very long time. So I know they are doing some amazing work out there, training people, recruiting people, getting people who are already practicing OCD and getting them on their panels. So check them out. Okay. Let's talk about this balancing act. I think this is a struggle that, that I know I have, and maybe you do as well. So I want to talk about what it is first, just as a, just a snapshot. And that is, you know, when our child is, it kind of shows up in two different ways. So the overall snapshot, the, the macro view of our child having a disorder. So our child has anxiety or OCD, and just in general, how much do we push them to work on it and how much do we not push? So there's that. And then there's the in the moment stuff. And so in in the moment stuff is they're having a hard time right now. What should I do? Should I push them to do this? Should I not push them? Should I give into this compulsion? Should I not give in? What should I do in the moment? And a big bulk of the questions that I get in the AT parenting community are often about this. Not they don't, you know, phrase it as the push pull, but they'll say, should I push her to do this? Or should I make her do this? Or am I not pushing her enough? I don't want to be a bad mom or I don't want to be a bad dad. It's a common problem. So one analogy that I have for this is we'll have two that came to mind because you know I'm big on analogies because I think a visual on this problem can be helpful. And I use this one a lot is that we want our kids to be in the driver's seat and we want to be in the passenger seat. And so it's kind of like if you're walking with someone, you ever walked with someone 
I went biking with a friend the other day, which was very nice. And we're biking together. It was e-bikes. We were like zooming along, which is very cool. And we were having a conversation. So I wanted to keep up with her, but I didn't want to go past her because then it's rude and I couldn't have a conversation with her. I didn't want to go behind her because then I couldn't talk to her. I was screaming at her and I just wanted to go next to her. And it was a very big struggle to just get that right balance to not go too fast, to not go too slow, and to just be right beside her. And in fact, I never got that sweet spot. (laughs) So sometimes I'd go ahead. Sometimes I'd go behind. Sometimes I'd slow down because I was going too fast. And then she would zoom up ahead of me and then I have to catch up. And that's a great analogy for this dance that we do with our kids with anxiety and OCD. We're constantly having to modulate and readjust our speed to adapt to them. The other thought that I had, the other metaphor or visual that I have for this is like training wheels. If I hop on the bike with my child and I say, let's ride together. Yeah, they're going to get desensitized to the feeling of being on a bike and the balance, but they're not doing any of the work. So I might be driving that bike. We might be pedaling and I might think, oh my gosh, my child is great. Look at us speeding along, but I'm in the back pedaling and steering. So the minute I get off, the child will not know how to ride a bike. If they have training wheels, they're getting that that empowerment and they're doing it themselves. And slowly we can take off those wheels as they get better. And so I hope that makes sense because sometimes we might wonder, you know, does it really matter about this? Like how far I push or how far I don't. And it really does because it will make or break your child's long-term success. And so it is really crucial, but it's a process. And so I don't want to like give you panic because there's nothing that you're doing today or tomorrow that's going to make or break your child's long-term success. But down the road, we really want our kids to feel empowered and we really want them to feel like they're owning their struggles and how we do this dance will contribute to that. So let's get into it. Okay. We want to empower. We don't want to push. And so there is a difference. We are constantly reading our child's cues. We want to see what things are pushing them over the edge because we're taking their lead. Now, some parents might say, well, if I took their lead, we'd be going nowhere because their lead is firmly sitting on their butt, on the couch, digging their heels in, not doing anything. <laughs> is that is that your kid? Not all kids are like that. A lot of kids are like rolling up their sleeves and they're like, let's do this. And the parents a little bit cautious saying like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't want to, I don't want to rock the boat or push you too far too fast. Let's just take this one step at a time. And a lot of us are right in the middle, you know, where sometimes our kids are gung-ho and some kids, sometimes our kids are putting on the brakes and that's the struggle. So we can't go faster than where our child is at. So I talk about this a lot in my survival tools for parents who are raising kids with anxiety and OCD. It's a free series that I do. And in fact, that free series will be coming out again in December. So stay tuned for that. I do it twice a year. And in that series, I talk about how we have to meet our child where they're at. And so that's not what this episode is about, but I do want to talk briefly about that. That if my child is not wanting to even discuss anxiety or OCD, then my first step is to work on communication and trust. And that's where I might be pushing is some dialogue around that. But we're going to talk about how far do you push? Because sometimes parents are like, okay, they're not doing anything. So I'm going to force feed education on anxiety or OCD. And then they kind of 
push too hard on that. And then the communication and trust continues to worsen. And so it is a very balanced tightrope that you have to walk. So the first step you want to do, because you know, I always like to give you concrete things, not just talking these like philosophical, like broad strokes, but let's just talk about concrete things. Do you know your child's cues? So everybody has cues. It was kind of fun and interesting because my husband was an FBI agent and he was, you know, he had to interrogate a lot of subjects and he would always talk about tells. And it was interesting to hear him talk about things like he could tell when someone was lying and he would start to interview someone and he could start to tell their mannerisms and what they did that would kind of indicate when they were lying. He was actually really highly intuitive as well. And I think we all have that ability to read people's tells or their cues and not just for when people are lying, although it's interesting because if you really get to know someone, everybody has mannerisms that they do when they're feeling different emotions, which I find fascinating. That in and of itself, I could study that forever. But, and then I found out his, (laughs) I could tell when he was uncomfortable, he would do certain things. And you probably know that about your partners too, but we want to know about our kids. So if you don't know what their cues are that say, oh my gosh, I'm about to explode, put a pin in me, things are are about to go really choppy, then you're going to want to start to observe your child. And even if you think you know what the cues are, you might want to do a little experiment when they're having a hard time as you you, you want to try to not get as wrapped up into it as you maybe normally do and have a part of you that's observant and say, what does she look like right now? What does he look like right now? What does her body do? What does her face do? What are her actions? What are her words? What things does she say when she's feeling overwhelmed? If they don't communicate, what things does, does their face communicate? And even if they're very verbal, look for those nonverbal cues. And if you hone in on observations, you'll start to notice certain things. And that can be very helpful. Because those are their genuine cues that they are overwhelmed. Because when you're pushing them, you might get some verbal pushback that says, I don't want to do that, or you need to do that for me, whichever it is, right? Because anxiety and OCD loves avoidance. It also likes you to do things, especially if it's anxiety, they want you to do things for them. And if it's OCD, maybe they want you to do a compulsion or they want to do a compulsion. So avoidance and action are kind of two pieces of the puzzle. They might be very resistant to your suggestions or your coaching, but it might be what I call a paper dragon. And a paper dragon is it seems really big and it seems really scary and it seems overwhelming, but it's it's just a facade. And you can roll it up, you know, and it's you know, it can be as big as your ceiling, but you it's paper. You can roll it up and you can put it in your the palm of your hand. I had spent a long time <laughs> looking for a paper dragon for my office. When I was in my practice, because I use that analogy so much about OCD and anxiety being a paper dragon, I could not find a paper dragon anywhere because it's a great analogy, right? Because it looks huge, but it's really not made out of much. There's no substance to it. And so we want to know, are we dealing with a real dragon or a paper dragon? And how do we know that? So think about this for a second. What are your child's cues? I can tell you a little bit about my kids. So my oldest she will start to move her finger over her eyebrow or she'll even like kind of pull at her eyelash. So consistently when she's uncomfortable or I'm pushing her too far or making her uncomfortable or somebody else is making her uncomfortable, 
I will notice her doing that with her, with her finger. That's very specific to her. Now she has a history of pulling. So I think that that's part of her cue is it's self-soothing in a way. So that's one of hers. With my youngest, with Miss 9, who's actually next month going to be Miss 10, and my Mr. 11 turned to Mr. 12, they're all aging. My Miss Miss 17 is now Miss 18. They all change within a two-month period. Well, two of them are in October, and then my youngest is in November. So it's it's actually kind of nice for my brain because it's like, oh, they're all changing numbers, <laughs> you know, and I just have to move them all to a different number. But Miss 9 currently, a lot of times it's physical, so her stomach will hurt before anything else. She'll start complaining about some stomach issues. If her stomach is hurting, she's starting to feel anxious. She has some medical issues too with celiac, and now we just found out that she's like severely lactose intolerant. But because we're kind of getting those resolved, especially the lactose intolerance, once we found that out and we've, we've you know, addressed that, uh, her stomach pain has gone down considerably. So now it's even easier to say, your stomach is hurting. What's going on in, in your world? So that's, that's a cue for her. And just to give you a couple of them, you know, Mr. 12, he has a look. He has a look in his eye. There, and I can't even describe it, but it is a look that says, I'm about to blow up. And kind of he's holding back tears and there's this look. And there is a look of panic too that he has on his face. So think about what those are because those are the authentic cues that you're going to tap into when you are maybe in the push-pull situation and you're not sure if this is going too far or not. Okay, so that that's the one thing I wanted to highlight first. And then I want to talk about the reason why we want to not always push them is because if we push them too far, we can really impact their ability to be empowered and we can impact their self-efficacy, their feeling of being effective and improving their self-esteem. And so sometimes I'll be pushing or they'll be doing an exposure or something, and then they're not able to do it. And for my son, especially, then there's a lot of negative self-talk. I can't do it. I'm stupid. It's too hard. I'm always going to have this. Life is horrible. We don't want that. And so sometimes if I decide to pull back or if they're pulling back and I agree with them, I feel like this is not something we're going to have to push. I do a reframe with them and I'll say, it's okay. You don't have to win them all. You're going to have a lot of battles with anxiety and OCD and you do not have to win them all. That doesn't mean that you're not going to overcome anxiety or OCD, but there are like these little battles and some are too big right now and you're building up muscles or I'll find something that they did towards that. Um, you know, if my son is trying to eat something and he can't eat it and he took one last bite, I'll say, Hey, you know what? You at least went back and you took one more bite. That's amazing. You know, you had the last bite. You didn't let OCD have the last bite. That's kind of a motto that we say in our house. So don't forget to reframe those losses so that we are trying to keep their self-esteem intact because self-esteem, it's a big side dish for anxiety and OCD issues because it it can really impact their self-esteem. And I do actually have a lot of resources on that because that is such an important element that we need to address with our kids with anxiety and OCD because it does impact on so many levels. So I did episode 206 is how self-esteem plays a role in kids with anxiety and OCD. Episode 91 how to boost your child's self-esteem, episode 12, five things that good parents do that actually hurt self-esteem. So 
And I actually have on my YouTube channel, and my YouTube channel is predominantly made for kids and teens directly. So I'm talking to people who actually have anxiety and OCD. Even parents watch my YouTube videos to help themselves. And I have an episode called Helping a Child with Negative Self-Talk. And so if you go to my YouTube channel, which there are links in the show notes, if you go to YouTube and you just type Natasha Daniels OCD, my channel will pop up. And if you go and you can search my channel, and if you search negative self-talk, I did do a video on helping a child with negative self-talk. And so that can help as well. Okay. But back to what we're talking about. So that's why we want to also be able to be a cheerleader when we are not pushing. That's important. So when we have a situation, let's just take like a scenario where they're in the middle of trying to do something and it's too much. That's pretty much where we're going to be. The general push and pull, you know, do I push them or do I not push them on a, on the broad strokes perspective is we want to push our kids slightly out of their comfort zone. We don't want to be complacent because anxiety and OCD is, you know, it can tend to grow and grow and we want to give our kids the skills and the tools to use those tools themselves. And we don't want to be reactive. We want to be proactive. And these are tools that we teach our kids that will make them resilient no matter what. So some people say, I don't want to, you know, dive into any of that stuff yet because they're not diagnosed. And I'll say, well, why are you waiting? You know, like these are all good things. Like I could teach any human being the stuff that I teach kids with anxiety and OCD, and they're going to be a better human being for it because they're going to be resilient. They're going to learn how to walk towards their fears. They're going to learn how to handle discomfort. That's a, that's a human being skill, not an anxiety and OCD skill. It just happens to really help with anxiety and OCD, but we want to be training our kids, especially in this world and where the world is headed, that they're going to have to be resilient and we can teach that. I think our kids with anxiety and OCD are going to be particularly resilient because they're already learning how to build these muscles versus a lot of other kids. So there's a weird silver lining for you. But let's just take a situation where in the moment, maybe your child had to go to a birthday party. I'm going to just use scenarios that are actually real for my world because that makes it easier for me. So in the past, my daughter would be really anxious about having to go to a birthday party, social anxiety, emetophobia sensory motor OCD, where she's afraid she might have to pee a hundred million times. The emetophobia and the sensory motor OCD were very similar. It was a, a lock, a, like a loss of control. I might lose control over my bladder or my stomach. It'll be embarrassing. And there goes the social anxiety as the cherry on top, right? It'll be humiliating. And so let's say she has this friend and she was really excited about going to the birthday party. And that day she's like, I just, my stomach is killing her. She's doubled over in pain. And I can tell that she's not doing well. And she says, I just don't want to go. So what do I do? Do I push her or do I just pull back at that time? Well, sometimes it's kind of um, a moment by moment assessment. You know, sometimes I'll look at that and I'll think, nope, nope, she's really not okay. I don't want her to go to the party and have a horrible experience. And then that become hardwired into her brain as well of, oh, and I tried this one time and then I had a really horrible experience or my mom forced me to go and I had a really horrible experience. Because even if we force them to go, it doesn't mean that that's going to rewire their neural pathways and they're going to have an alternative narrative in their head and in their physiological like neural pathways that it was a better experience. Um, it could go really wrong and it can actually hardwire their thoughts that say, yeah, 
I knew I shouldn't have gone and I shouldn't have gone. It was horrible. And I had a horrible experience. So always forcing our kids to do something isn't always the best thing to do. So with her, you know, I said, well, let's just get in the car and we'll drive there and then we'll see how you feel in the parking lot. And I do that because even just getting her one step further would be progress, right? So asking your child, can they do this one small step? So if my son is having an ARFID experience with his food, which is almost always at this point right now, and he can't eat it, I'll say, can you just take one more bite before you throw it away? And so doing that small step serves two purposes. One, it makes them feel like successful. It makes them feel like they've done something to benefit themselves instead of giving totally in. And it also is really helpful for the battle of anxiety and OCD to say, I took one step towards it when anxiety or OCD told me to take one step back. So if possible, I always try to get my kids to do one small step. Now, sometimes my daughter will be like, nope, nope, not having it. And I can see the panic in her face. And I know it's a no-go. And so I'm not going to hit that wall over and over again and butt heads with her. Now, there are things that we have to do, like blood work. There's not an option for that. It has to get done. But in other areas where it's not a mandatory thing, I'll let it go. And then I'll do some like reframing for her. And I'll say, you know what? You're going to win some and you're going to lose some. And that's okay. You are a powerhouse. You know, you crushed this so many times. You're allowed to have times where you just can't crush it. This is just too big of a piece. And that's okay. You take a lot of other pieces all the time. This is just too big of a step right now but that doesn't mean that someday you won't be able to do this. So we want to reframe that for sure. But what happens with the birthday party is we get into the parking lot and the whole way there, we're doing reframing. This is anxiety-based predominantly. And so I'm doing red thoughts and green thoughts with her, which is the approach that I teach in my crush anxiety course, which is just basic cognitive behavioral therapy. You know, like, what are your red thoughts? I'm afraid I'm going to throw up. What are your green thoughts? Well, if I throw up, you know, then I'll come home. We don't use green thoughts that provide reassurance. We use green thoughts that provide acceptance. And so, um, well, I have to go to the bathroom. Well, what what are your green thoughts? Well, I know I've done exposures and I can hold my pee for four hours without a problem. Okay. You know, what's a red thought? And so one, I'm not doing these for her. I'm just guiding her. What's your next red thought? What's your next green thought? Because we've done that for so long that we can get into that rhythm really fast. So by the time we get into the parking lot, She's done some cognitive restructuring for herself. And then I'll say, okay, well, we can just sit here and then we can go back home. With my kids, and every kid is different, the less I push, the more they push themselves. And every kid has a different personality. So at that time, we had a couple of these. <laughs> I'm like, compo- this is like a composite story of like multiple birthday parties that happened. This is pre COVID. This was like kindergarten, first grade, lots of birthday parties. And she was like at the peak of her anxiety and OCD. And she said, I'll go in, I'll go in. And then I'd go in and then, you know, the birthday kid would like come up to her and then she would run off and she'd be like, I'm good. I'm fine, mom. And then at the end, when we'd be coming home, I'd say, what do you have to tell your O cloud? And she'd say, I tell my O cloud, you know, you can boss me around. You can make me feel nauseous. You can make me feel like it's going to be horrible, but I'm going to still go. So that reframing at the end too. It's not really reframing at the end. It's like paraphrasing the successes that have happened are really important. So that's an example of getting them to do one small step. Now, if your child is in the middle of a trigger, so something happens and they are in a full-blown panic. So let's say they touch something that 
was contaminated that they didn't realize and they're they're panicking about it. Or let's say my son is like feeling nauseous and he's really anxious, he's going to throw up. That's not the time to push them. <laughs> so that's not the time to cheerlead and say, so if my son is, you know, nauseous and afraid to throw up, that's not the time for me to be like, you know, let's do a food exposure or you haven't eaten as much today. You know, you need to go eat something because he's already in this vulnerable state. He's already in a panic state. He's already at a 10. It's not the time for me to push him at all. It's the time to contain and support him and just kind of put out the fire that is there. So if your child has been triggered in that moment, often that's not the time to push them further. It's to help them through it. And when help, when you're helping them through it, sometimes that might mean getting them to sit with discomfort or getting them to sit with whatever feelings they're having, but it's not to add to it. That we would do sometimes when they're doing okay and they're taking a challenge or they're doing an exposure, we might sprinkle on a little bit more doubt or discomfort on top of it to make it more effective. We would not do that in that moment. So you want to ask yourself, what level of involvement does your child need from you? Are you over-involved? Are you under-involved? We want to get that sweet spot where your involvement is just as much as your child needs. And I think that that's a really hard balancing act for all of us, myself included, is am I doing too much? Am I doing too little? And you'll never hit it just right. (laughs) Sorry. I never hit it just right. That's going to be impossible. But we're aiming for the middle, right? So you want to ask yourself, am I doing more than what I need to be doing? Am I micromanaging their exposures and their challenges? Am I offering too much of the reframing instead of offering them to do it for themselves? So instead of me saying, what is your red thought? This is my crush anxiety course language. You can use your own language, but what is your red thought? What is your green thought? Am I giving it to them? Am I spoon feeding them answers? You know, you're going to be fine today because you're always fine. And this is just your anxiety and your anxiety makes you feel nauseous and you're going to go to school and you're going to have a great day. Am I doing that? Because that's not being a coach. That's driving the bus. (laughs) You are in control. You're not even letting them pedal. And even though it can feel better because we might not think they have the capability of doing that, we're not giving them an opportunity to develop those skills themselves. We want them to start telling themselves, what are their green thoughts? What can they do? That's for anxiety. We don't do that with OCD. I don't do red thoughts and green thoughts OCD because we don't really talk to OCD at all, but we might be sarcastic with OCD. Yeah, I might throw up. And if I throw up, oh, well, you know, can I handle that discomfort? I may or may not. Or yeah, my bad thought might kill my mom today. You know, if I have that magic power, then I guess we'll have to see, right? I didn't tap three times, so I didn't prevent it from happening. So we'll have to see if like my mom's alive when I come home talking about like magical thinking around OCD, just to use that as an example. And so you want to ask yourself, what level of involvement do they need from me? And what level of involvement am I at now? Conversely, sometimes we are all hands off. The therapist has got this. I think they're good to go. I pay for them to go to a very expensive therapist. And so I don't really need to be involved. Or my kid doesn't want to do anything around therapy. My kid doesn't want to do anything around anxiety or OCD. And so there's nothing I can do. Or my kid's been doing really well for a while and they have a lot of skills and I feel like they're really well trained and we've been doing this for a long time. So I don't think they need me to babysit that. And so we have to kind of revisit that all the time 
What level of involvement do they need from me? And it's just one of those mantras that you have to ask yourself, what level of involvement do they need from me? Am I giving them too much or too little right now? And often we're giving too much, I think. I think at least the people like in my world, because these are active, engaged parents, parents in my AT parenting community, my online community, it's like a membership community, which you can find out more at atparentingcommunity.com. I'll be like a walking and a commercial for my membership community. But like those parents, like they're rolling up their sleeves and they're statistically, if you're going to join a membership that is like literally there to help your child with anxiety or an OCD, you're going to be a pretty empowered parent who is really actively working on it. So I don't have a lot of parents in that community, if any. And if I do, they're not active. <laughs> so I wouldn't notice who are not trying to be involved with their kids' well being, with their anxiety or OCD, you know, because they're actively involved. But there are plenty of parents, probably just ones that are not on my radar because they wouldn't be seeking out resources like you are listening to this podcast who are hands off completely because they're like, I just don't want to, I don't want to upset my child. I don't want to, you know, have them feel discomfort the way that I did. And, and so there's more coddling because they think they're saving their child pain, but they're really not because long-term their child's not building up any skills. So I will say that recently, you know, with my husband passing away in February and my own grief journey that has really like taken me kind of derailed me and then closing my practice. I've had a lot going on. So I'm trying to use a little bit of self-compassion here, but I noticed when I asked myself, what level of involvement does my child need from me? I'm not stepping up to the plate. And so there was that realization in the last month or so that I could be doing more. I am not babysitting exposures. I'm not even talking about OCD with my son. He talks about it with me because he's so well-trained that he'll often say, oh, my OCD is really bothering me or, oh, you know, that meal really triggered my OCD or mom, I just took three more bites because I did an exposure. And he will like narrate to me what he's doing. And in my grief fog, I'd say, okay, that's good enough, right? He's doing something. That's good. Okay. He's working on it. And now that I'm starting to kind of come out of my fog, or at least I have like now big blocks of time where I'm more lucid. And then I go back into my fog, which really sucks. But I guess that's how the grief goes. I'm like, oh, I should probably be a little bit more intentional around his OCD because, you know, it waxes and wanes and, you know, I see it coming back up again. And so the other day I said to him, you need to be doing exposures outside of just eating your regular food and then just being on the defense. You know, defense is I'm reacting to OCD. OCD is bothering me. And now I'm reacting to how OCD is bothering me. I get to choose how I'm going to handle that. I said, you, you need to be on the offense too, where you are poking at OCD on purpose because you're doing an exposure. So you're, you're purposely picking a food that you know is going to be upsetting to your OCD and you're going to sit down, you're going to eat that as an exposure. Both are important, the offense and the defense. The reason why I thought about that is because I actually did a live class. I do weekly classes in my AT parenting community for the members and we did one. What were we talking about? Oh, it was like they vote on the topic. So they create the topics and they vote on which one. And then I teach on that each week. And this past week was how to balance exposures with real life, which I really didn't know which way they wanted me to go on that because there's no like the AT Parenting Community Manager is the one that picks the topics from the members and puts them on a poll. So I didn't know exactly what they wanted me to talk about. And so I started to talk about 
offense and defense, you know, that we have to tackle OCD and anxiety from two different perspectives. One that we're reactive on the defense and offensive where we are doing challenges for anxiety or doing exposures for OCD. And we're setting up things that are purposely triggering our anxiety or OCD. And that both are equally important. Side note completely, but the community members were like, can you do a YouTube video for our kids on this? And I thought I had done something like that, but I couldn't find it. And so I am going to create a YouTube video on that. And I don't know exactly what it's going to be called right now, but it's going to talk about offense and defense and about how to live your day-to-day life crushing anxiety and OCD. And it's going to be talking about how you have to do both of those things. You have to react and, you know, the defense of reacting to anxiety or OCD when it shows up and the offense of poking at it when it's not bothering you. So this podcast is going to come out on Tuesday. So my YouTube video is already out. If I was to time travel, when you're listening to this, it's already done magically. So go to my YouTube channel and it should be the last video that's been uploaded. And so that will um, maybe help some of your kids learning about offense and defense and having to do both of those things. And my YouTube channel, like I said, if you just search my name, Natasha Daniels OCD, it'll pop up. I always leave links in my show notes to get to my YouTube channel. So you can find it that way too. I'd give you the YouTube address, but it's like very convoluted. It's like youtube.com slash C slash anxious toddler 78. That's my YouTube channel and I can't change it. They don't let you change it. Once you've done it, you can't change it. And it's not about anxious toddlers. That just is the name that I started off doing in 2015 when I wrote a book on anxious toddlers. And now I've been like stuck with that forever. So long tangent, but check out that YouTube video. I think that'll really help some kids. So the last thing I want to do, I just want to talk about a couple of examples of this and I'm going to use my kids. So I'm going to be talking about issues that may not be relevant to your kids, but you know, just put your kids themes and issues in my child's place. And it will all make sense because it's, it's all the same. It's just how you approach things. So Mr. 12 was eating sweet and sour chicken the other day. And it's totally hit or miss whether he's going to like them or not. I just don't know. And so he was eating and he was done. So this is what happens. I'll see him, you know, sitting there with the food for a while. And then I'll either see it thrown away or if it's something that we got for takeout, it's like the entire thing is back in the fridge. So I saw the entire thing back in the fridge and I said, you didn't eat your dinner. And he said, I did. And I said, it doesn't look like you even touched it. And he said, mom, it was really triggering. And it was really chewy and my OCD didn't like it. And don't worry, I took an extra bite before I put it back. So I got the last bite. And in that moment, I could tell from his tone and from his facial expression that there was no pushing him any further. And he had already taken an extra bite. And that's kind of what I trained him to do. And so I let that go. But I was cognizant of swinging back and talking about those exposures that I just talked about later that that day you know, to talk about a general conversation about doing exposures more. So instead of pushing him in that moment, you know, I shelved it. And then I reminded myself to come back later and talk to him about doing exposures in general to build up his muscle. So if your child's having a hard time in the moment and maybe you've pushed them and they've taken one little baby step, you can shelf that and then maybe do exposures or challenges or things that are going to hit that theme later down the road when they're feeling a little bit better. Another example. Let me think of one that's more like clearly OCD related, something totally different than my kids. Let's say 
your child is upset about the couch and feels like the couch is contaminated and you're trying to encourage them to sit on the couch and they won't because maybe someone who's contaminated sat on it or the dog that's contaminated sat on it and they refuse to sit on the couch. It's not they sit on the couch or they don't sit on the couch and that's that. It's finding that sweet spot as well to say, can I push them and can I push them in a smaller way? So if they say no to that, think of yourself as like, a used car salesman. That's how I always felt when I had my practice. I always felt like I was trying to sell a used car. Like I was negotiating. Let me go back to my manager and see. Let me check the numbers. Let me see. You know, it's like, and so, okay, you don't want to sit on the couch. I get it. That's, that's maybe too far up the mountain. That's okay. But I wonder if you could put your backpack on the couch. You know, your backpack is something that you carry all the time. And that would be pretty impressive. You can put your backpack on the couch and then touch your backpack. And so Uh, Nope, that's a 10 too. Okay, that's a 10. I get that. So could you just put maybe your strap on the couch? What you're trying to do when you're doing, when you're trying to gauge how far to push your kids is you're trying to see that sweet spot of where they can tolerate the distress, but we're not getting complete refusal. And so when you're creating exposures and you're creating challenges or because pushing our kids comes in many different ways, right? It can be a natural situation that's happening, like a birthday party. A lot of the stuff that I gave as examples are natural experiences, but it could also be when you're crafting exposures or challenges. Sometimes we'll want our kids to go farther because we want that bang for the buck. We were like, we really want you to like make this progress. And to us, because we're not experiencing the fear or discomfort that comes with it, it seems like we maybe rotely know all the skills and what to do. We just need our kid to do it. And so we might really be a little bit overzealous and just be like, touch your sister or sleep in your own bed. And they haven't slept in their own bed for five years. You know, it's like baby steps. So it's not a push or don't push sometimes. It's a how far do I push question. And I feel like that's almost always the question is how far do I push versus do I push or not push? Unless you see your child with all those cues that we talked about in the beginning of this episode where they look like they are going to go into a panic attack. When I see that crazed look on my kid's face, all bets are off. And then I'm going into empowerment mode where I'm like, it's okay. You're not going to win them all. But when I don't see that on their face, it's how far do I push? Because even if I can push them just a little bit, that's an opportunity. That's an opportunity for them to grow. And so if they can't touch that, can they get a tissue and touch that? If they can't get the tissue and touch that, can they touch something that touched the tissue? If they can't say that word, can they write that word? If they can't write that word, can they see someone else write that word? If they can't see someone else write that word, can they see a symbol that represents that word? So we want to find where is that discomfort? Because most often it's not this or that, it's this and a little bit of maybe that or a little bit of that. There is a lot of gray in between this and that, right? And a skilled person, whether it's a clinician or a parent, can find that sweet spot and get their kids to do that. So when my daughter had sensory motor OCD issues, it was, can you not go to the bathroom for 10 minutes? Well, she wasn't going to the bathroom every 10 minutes. She may be going to the bathroom every, you know, 30 minutes. And so Some parents would say, well, she can definitely do that because she doesn't even go to the bathroom every 10 minutes. She goes to the bathroom every 30 minutes. Sensory motor OCD, for those of you that don't know what that is, it's when you feel like this urge 
to pee all the time and there's no physiological reason for it. Sensory motor OCD makes you like hyper-focus on bodily functions. And so that's one component. But I went with 10 minutes because I knew she could do it. And when you highlight, okay, you're not going to go to the bathroom for the next 10 minutes and you have sensory motor OCD, all of a sudden you're going to have to go to the bathroom. So starting off small can be very helpful. You're going to get more engagement from your kids, more motivation when you start off erring on the side of caution and going smaller. And then you can quickly build up depending on their response to it. I've talked about this before, but there was like a two-day period when my daughter got like really out of control around blood and blood like in the veins and blood in the arteries, which is kind of weird considering her dad eventually died of a blood clot. Who knows? That was weird. But she had, this was way before he died. She was doing a science experiment and well, it wasn't a science experiment. She was doing science homework and they had to like see the, the flow of blood in the body. She'd never even had that theme and she couldn't sit down. She couldn't touch me. She couldn't hug me. It like ballooned out of control for like, like a 48 hour period, maybe a 24 hour period. Cause by the next day we got it under control, but like, I've never seen a theme pop up so abruptly and so extreme in a short period of time. And she didn't want to do any exposures for it. She was, had that panicky look on her face, but because it was a new theme and I saw just how like overwhelming it was becoming in such a short period of time, I knew we needed to nip this in the bud. And I wasn't operating from fear because you got to check yourself. Am I wanting to push because fear is, is controlling our pace or am I wanting to push because I am intellectualizing what needs to happen and I'm reading her cues and I'm feeling this is a good decision. We don't want to be pushing out of our own fear. Fear should not be propelling us to push our kids. It should come from a place of intention. You know, this, I'm reading her cues and she's able to do this and I'm going to move on with her. Her cues were not that good. And so I said, let's do exposures around this. And she's like, no. And she had that really like deer cotton headlights look. And then I said, okay, let's, we can just start off really, really, really tiny. Now my kids really respond to brave points and positive reinforcement is a huge factor in me getting them to do exposures. I remember, cause it was a long time ago. I threw out something, Hey, you can earn blah, blah, blah. Now when she's like a total no-go, she'll say, I don't care. I don't care. No, I don't care. I don't care. And the way she even says it is a cue for me because there's a tone that she says it in when she's serious that I know it's not going to happen. She'll be like, I don't care. No, no, I don't care. It's kind of like this like panicky thing. I know at that point not to push it because it's a no, it's a total no-go. So she did have that tone, (laughs) but it's a bad example because I actually did push her further anyway. So it's not really the best example, but I found the entry point. I said, you can earn blah, blah, blah. Can't remember what it was. I think it was LOL dolls. She's not into Barbies or LOL dolls anymore. (laughs) I'm very tangential today. I'm sorry. Yesterday or two days ago, she's like, yep, I don't want my Barbies or my LOLs. And so I had like, I mean, we had given her so many LOLs for exposures. I had so many. I dropped them off at Goodwill with this huge Barbie dollhouse that cost a fortune and two huge garbage bags of Barbies and a huge bag full of LOLs. And I mean, like probably $2,000 worth of stuff. I said to the guy who could care less, I said, you just won the Barbie lottery. (laughs) He was like, he didn't even smile. I thought that was pretty funny, but he did. He didn't realize like I'm dumping off liquid gold here. Well, it's not liquid. I'm dumping off gold. Some kid is going to be like, oh my gosh, 
Goodwill is the best place ever. But anywho, she probably earned an LOL doll. But I said, could you look at like a blood emoji icon? It'll be like a cartoon emoji icon. And she said, fine, fine. And so we started with that. And then once you get your kids to start doing something pretty simple, you have some traction. And then you say, can you do a little bit of this? So with her, I actually pushed her within that day. And then I said, could you do a whole page of the blood emoji icon? And she did. And she like, you know, just cut and pasted all the way through. And then I was like, can you type the word blood? And she did. Um, Long story short is that we just kept on going because she would do it. And she's like, that wasn't that bad. And I was like, you're earning so many LOLs. Can you do blah, blah, blah. And so within that day, and I wouldn't recommend this always, but I mean, it's what treatment centers do. Within that day, she was looking at things that I wouldn't even want to look at because <laughs> I have a blood phobia, <laughs> which is so sad. She like cut herself the other day upstairs and I was downstairs and she did say, oh, I cut myself and I'm bleeding. And I was like, are you okay? Go get a bandaid. And then she comes down like 15 minutes later and she's like, I'm bleeding really hard. And she was really bleeding. I was like, oh my gosh, why didn't you tell me that? She goes, mom, I knew it really upset you. And that made me feel really bad. Cause I'm like, I'm your mom. I can handle it. Like, I may not like, cause she gets, she has bloody noses and oh my gosh, like it makes me want to vomit. Just the smell of it. And like so much blood. I do have a very weak stomach. So she was doing exposures that made me uncomfortable by the end of that day. And then that issue has not resurfaced. And so I wouldn't recommend that. I'm using that as an example to show you that I kept gauging her her willingness to move on and I kept gauging her cues and she was ready. She was ready to go on to the next one and to the next one. And so when we can get our kids to do one little step and we can move on a little bit further and on a little bit further. So don't be afraid to keep going when they're doing okay. And don't be afraid to stop before you even begin when they're not okay. So respecting and honoring their pace is important. And sometimes they're going to pick up that pace and you can't keep up with them. Just like how I started with that bike ride in the beginning of this podcast. And sometimes they're going to be at a full stop and you're going to be like, oh my gosh, you're not even moving. So it's tricky. And I hope that some of my babbling has helped you figure out where you need to focus and what things you need to push on and what things you need to maybe pull back on some of the time. Because at the end of the day, we want our kids to trust us and not see us as the anxiety or OCD police. We want to also have them trust themselves and not see us as the anxiety or OCD rescuer. And so those are two really bad rules and they're bad rules for different reasons, right? One is, you know, hypervigilant to any anxiety or OCD. And so our kids wind up hiding their issues because they don't want us to force them to do stuff. And the other one is really a co-conspirator to anxiety or OCD inadvertently where you don't want them to feel the discomfort. So you take on the burden of anxiety or OCD and you wind up having kind of the disorder with them because you're doing everything anxiety and OCD wants as well as your child is. So we want to be somewhere in the middle because we want our kids to feel like they can go on without us and crush this stuff because those are the tools they're going to have to use for the rest of their lives. And we want to make sure that they have them. And uh, I'm sure that you are doing a fantastic job. And just by listening to this podcast and learning these new skills that shows that you are invested and you are growing and developing just like I am all the time. 
So I hope you are enjoying the podcast. Hope you're finding these episodes relevant. Go check out that YouTube video. I think that will be a really good one. I have not recorded it yet, but I feel in my bones that it's going to be a good one. If you are enjoying the podcast and you hit a star and rate it wherever you consume it, that really does actually help podcasts. And if you can leave a review, I do greatly appreciate it. I know I am one to read reviews and I know other parents are too. We just don't have time to invest in podcasts or anything that isn't going to be fruitful. So I always like to show my gratitude by reading one of them. If there has been one that is new, that is left. I want to thank Christina for writing a review. She said, total lifesaver if you have an anxious child. This podcast really helps me develop more strategies in my parent toolkit to help support my anxious five-year-old. It's like having a child therapist giving you advice about literally everything. I've shared it with quite a few friends and parents of students. I'm a teacher. Thank you so much for this invaluable resource. I appreciate that. Thank you for taking the time to write a review. I really appreciate that. I feel like I have every topic. And if you don't know, if I have something, you can always go and search it. You can, I think, I think you can search podcasts directly on your podcast app, wherever you consume your podcast. But another easier way to do that is you can go to my website because all of my episodes are put up on my website at atparentingsurvival.com. And all my YouTube videos are put up on my website. So it is a nice place to check out all my resources because that's all I'm really doing is I'm doing a podcast a week and I'm doing a YouTube video a week and I do them on different topics. And so one is for your child or teen and one is for you. And uh, there is a search button on my website. So if you scroll all the way to the bottom at atparentingsurvival.com, go all the way to the bottom, there's a search button and just type in your, your keyword, your topic, and any podcast episode, any YouTube video that I've done on that topic will pop up and you will be surprised that I think this is episode 233. And I don't know how many YouTube videos I've done, probably, probably the same amount, if not more trying to think which came first. I think my YouTube channel actually came before my podcast. So you're looking at 500 episodes between both of those. That's a lot of episodes. So go check those out and don't forget to find the sparkle in everything you do. That is something that I am truly trying to do. It's not just a cute sign off. It is something that I am really, really living through right now. And I hope that you are too. Find the sparkle because there is a sparkle hidden in every day, no matter how miserable things might seem. And we have to be able to really soak up those sparkles. And that sparkle might just be like a little ice cream at the end of your night, or that sparkle might just be a really cute conversation that you have with your kid for five minutes or, you know, a little hug with your partner. Those are sparkles and those sparkles are important to soak up. So I will talk to you again next Tuesday. Take care. Bye. Thank you for listening to the AT Parenting Survival Podcast. To get additional support raising a child with anxiety or OCD, visit Natasha's online school of on-demand classes at atparentingsurvivalschool.com.